Now let's read Joshua chapter 9. At least we won't read, read the whole thing. We'll read the first 21 verses of Joshua chapter 9. You follow as I read. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their own, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him, uh, and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, the king of Eshmon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. The people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shepharah, Beeroth, and Kirath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. And all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. And guys, there's a, there's a lot of little issues that are uh, contained in this passage, in this chapter. But um, we only have time to look at a couple of them. Um, the two that I want to draw your attention to is one of it. One thing is that it illustrates, this story illustrates the great need that um, God's people have, or the great lack that God's people have of wisdom, and the great need that they have for God's wisdom. That's one thing it illustrates. The other thing that it illustrates that I want to draw your attention in a minute is uh, is the constancy and the consistency of grace. And we'll look at that in a minute as well. 
Now, guys, uh, let's look first at our at, at our need for wisdom or, at, or our lack of wisdom, whatever however you want to say it. Um, during the course of uh, the ministry of Jesus, the three-year ministry of Jesus Christ, uh, he made a statement about Satan in, in John 8, and he said that Satan um, was the father of lies. Now, the, the Bible has lots of little titles that it gives to Satan. Um, it calls him a roaring lion. Peter calls him a roaring lion. Uh, Genesis 3 calls him a subtle serpent. Uh, he can at times overwhelm us like a lion. But at other times, Satan disguises himself as our friend. And ladies and gentlemen, he's, in my opinion, he's far more dangerous as, as a serpent than he is as a lion. That is, we are far more susceptible to being deceived than we are to being overwhelmed. Because we lack such wisdom. And then you couple with that our love of sin. And so often we're deceived into bad decisions. Just like you see here in Joshua 9 that Joshua um, and the elders of Israel made. Let, let me give you just an example of what I'm saying, guys. Um, You know how often I hear this story, or at least this part of a story, where lust has been confused for love, or lust has been mistaken for love? You know, guys, what do you think? How many, how many families do you think have been devastated? How many marriages have been busted up? Because of that one deception. Just that one. And there's score, hundreds, thousands of other deceptions. But just that one. How many families do you think have been damaged just by falling for that one? Guys, notice the extremes to which the Gibeonites go. I mean, they've got... They've got dry and crumbly bread, and they've got sandals that are worn out and clothes that are worn out and wineskins. I mean, these guys are, they're good. You know, somebody said that um, uh, Satan doesn't tell whoppers. He just tells little white lies, but he tells a whole lot of them. Guys, we get lied to all day. We get lied to by the media. We get lied to by people. We get lied to by advertising well Gibeon is a Gibeon is a group of pathological liars and they do a real good job of deceiving Joshua and the elders of Israel they, they dress up like something that they weren't boy that's one of Satan's favorites isn't it dressing up like something he isn't but sin always does that, guys. I, I referred to this sermon several times. It's uh, R.G. Lee's sermon, Payday Someday. It was preached like 1,100 times. But, but in that sermon, R.G. Lee uh, says that Satan only offers paste pearls. But they look good to us. I mean, they look good. They look real. But that's all he's got. 
but they look so good to us because because we lack such wisdom. And I want you to notice the bait. The bait is in verse 8. They said to him, they said to Joshua, we are your servants. Don't we all want to be served? Oh, how we, how we love to hear. We've heard about you, Joshua. <laughs> Why, Joshua, I mean, uh, you're famous. I mean, your reputation, Joshua, has, has been broadcast far and wide. I mean, what man can resist that? We all love to hear it. I mean, we're sitting ducks for stuff like that because we lack so much wisdom. Actually, guys, this is the, this is the second time Joshua has, um, has failed in a, in a similar fashion. Um, this is back-to-back failures for Joshua. Both of them brought on by being too confident in, in, in my own abilities. Or said another way, not being aware of how much wisdom I really lack. Joshua knew better. He has no excuse, and so do we. That is, neither do we have excuses. But verse 14, it's Joshua's undoing, and it is often ours. Take a look at it. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. There was wisdom available. It was just not accessed. It was, it was ignored. I think it was James who said, you have not because you ask not. Now, guys, it's, it's not that Joshua and the elders didn't ask the right questions. Oh, they were suspicious at, at just the right places. You see it in verse uh, 7 and 8, you know. Um, uh, but maybe you really live close to us. I mean, where are, uh, where are you from? And uh, who are you? And uh, where do you come from? It's not that they were sloppy in their investigation. It was that they were alone in their decision. It wasn't that they didn't think. It was that they didn't pray or they, or they didn't rely upon the wisdom that God makes available to his people. Let me kind of summarize this thing just briefly. Joshua has a very high view of his ability to reason. And so he listens to his reason uh, rather than God's than consult with God. And then he relies on his own judgment, his own common sense, and he makes a decision based on appearances. Does that sound familiar? Ever done that before? You know, guys, um, back in the 80s when, when, when Susie and I first moved to Memphis, you know, I did singles and it was really some happy years of our ministry. And, but I can't tell you the number of times that I had women say to me, he's such a gentleman. 
Now, you know what that means, don't you? What that means is, he's not a Christian, but he's such a gentleman. I had a, a woman come see me, I mean, virtually, right after she got back from the honeymoon. I, I, I think it was about three weeks into the marriage. And she came and sat in my office, and I mean, she was just, she was a whipped puppy. I mean, she was just disillusioned. She sat down, and she turned and looked at me, and she said, Jimmy, he is up to his eyeballs in debt. And I wanted to say, but he's such a gentleman. Guys, we are so confident in our own abilities, lamentably, that we um, we often make the same mistake of verse 14 of this chapter, of this story. We, we neglect prayer. And let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, you know what that means, don't you? It always implies that we have a confidence in our own abilities... And oh, how often does that lead to bad decisions? You know, I I love this story, this part of the the book of Joshua, because it really poses some some fairly significant questions for us as the people of God. For instance, do we need the guidance of God only in situations that we have doubt about? Um, Are we in danger when we say, uh, you know, we don't have time, we, we, we need to make this decision on the spur of the moment, we got to decide now. Is that something that we really ought to run from? Um, what situations are, are quite clear that is requiring no consultation with the Heavenly Father? I mean, we got this one under control. Guys, um, I said 10 minutes ago, I said we're far more susceptible to being deceived than we are to being overwhelmed by Satan. And it's because we're not aware of how much wisdom we lack. And there's a certain measure of unbelief that assumes I've got this under control. Guys, like like Israel, we need God's power to defeat our obvious enemies. But we also need his wisdom to detect our subtle enemies. I have a new favorite term. Uh, I didn't think this up. I read it in a book, just like everything else I know. If it's not in a book or on a tape, I don't know it. But I read this in a book recently, and it's my new favorite term. Repentant helplessness. (laughs) Repentant helplessness. Don't you love that? Now, that, that might be very appealing to a very sophisticated audience like this. But oh, ladies and gentlemen, it is safe. Repentant helplessness. And I think you'll find, 
I think you'll find that you pray more. But actually, prayer is really step two. Step one is being convinced that I lack so much wisdom. I really do. And I need God to guide me. By the way, the most subtle enemy of all, ladies and gentlemen, is a false gospel. Not false gospels, just a false gospel, because there's only one. There's only one false gospel out there, ladies and gentlemen, and it is, it is the, the false gospel is this winsome suggestion that you can somehow save yourself. A, a, a self-salvation. It may, it may come packaged in different packages. It may, it may say something like this. Um, get yourself a white shirt and a nice tie and a bicycle. And you ride around door to door for the next two years, spreading the message. And if you do, you'll end up in heaven. Or it may sound like this. If you will simply submit to Sharia law and engage yourself in jihad, then sure. And by the way, 70 virgins get thrown in. You'll end up in heaven. Or it might sound like this. Do your best to obey the Ten Commandments. And, you know, be faithful to your wife. And that, that should do it. It's all so appealing to us. Because we really want to save ourselves. It's the same genre of, of unbelief. I don't want to rely on somebody else. I want to rely on me. But ladies and gentlemen, there's only one true gospel. And, and I want to suggest that that gospel is illustrated, or is that gospel is at least on display in the experience of the Gibeonites. Which brings me to my second point. Guys, um... This is another illustration, I think, of the consistency and the constancy of grace. And, and, and this is going to take some explaining, so you're going to have to wake up. You're going to have to stay with me a bit, because I, what I want to do is I want to track down for you the history of the Gibeonites. This is where it starts. I want to ultimately show you where it ends, about the history of the Gibeonites. Not ends, but how it proceeds. This is where Israel's relationship with the Gibeonites start. Joshua chapter 9. But this is not where it ends. That's what I want you to see. But let, let me let me see if I can make this clear. Do you remember? You remember uh, Rahab in chapter two? She was the prostitute. You remember that hid the spies. Rahab the prostitute. Well, um, do you remember why it is that Rahab said that she was willing to hide those spies? Do you remember that? Well, it's in verses ten and eleven of chapter two. But Rahab says. We have heard of this Yahweh and what he's done in Egypt. And, and how he defeated the, 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 uh, the Midianite the kings of Og and Bashan. Now, the reason I say that is, look at verse 9. Um, 
And Joshua says, where do you come from? They said, from a distant country. Your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and of all that he did to Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sion, the king of Eshbon, yada, yada, yada. That's the same thing, ladies and gentlemen, that Rahab said. Rahab, a prostitute, had heard this information about Yahweh, and she said, mm, mm. the Gibeonites heard the same thing, and they said, hmm, that's enough to make both of them decide that they needed to switch sides. Now, Rahab was a prostitute, and the Gibeonites are liars. They're pathological liars. They're good at it. They lied with ease. But they have heard about this Yahweh and they decide, we need to go over to the other side. But to do so meant that they were now both, that is Rahab and the Gibeonites, pitted against their former culture and their former kings. Had Rahab been caught, she would have been executed on the spot. The Gibeonites were caught. In fact, you're going to see it in chapter 10 next week, Lord willing. But um, once they were caught, this confederacy of kings that is mentioned in verses 1 and 2 dispatches an army to destroy them. And of course, Israel comes to their aid. Rahab the harlot and the Gibeonites the liars both become part of Israel. But in the earliest stages, they're kind of They're kind of on the edges. But that's not where they stayed. Remember what happened to Rahab? Um, Rahab ultimately marries um, and then becomes a ancestor of Christ. She's, She's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1. Remember that? Well, the Gibeonites have a story to tell too. And I want to tell it to you and then we're done. The Gibeonites were Hivites, ladies and gentlemen. That's mentioned in verse 7. And the Hivites fought Israel for the next 250 years. All through the period of the judges, you find Israel is fighting the Hivites. But never in any of those battles do you ever get any hint that the Gibeonites defected. Um, So... The Gibeonites not only left this confederacy of an army, they also uh, broke their normal bloodlines. They joined neither their, their, their former allies nor their blood relationships in the wars that followed against Israel. They remained through an act of choice in the midst of the people of Israel. When their, when their people, the Hivites, were still fighting Israel. Um, Rahab, we're told in the book of Hebrews, becomes a Christian. Or is a saved part of Israel, you, you probably more accurately said. But the Gibeonites, they too begin to develop a special place in Israel. You'll notice, I didn't read this, but well, it is in verse 21, that they were cutters of wood and drawers of water. For what? For a place 
um, that was devoted to the worship of Yahweh. Later in Joshua, Joshua 21, when the land is being uh, divvied up, the city of Gibeon is given to Aaron the priests. And then several hundred years later, David, who is the king of Israel, establishes the tabernacle at Gibeon. That means that the priest lived in Gibeon and the tabernacle was in Gibeon and that the Gibeonites were serving the temple worship of the nation of Israel. Fast forward with me just a little bit. When, um, when Israel was dragged into, well, let me, let me give you one more before I get to that one. When David dies, his son assumes the throne, Solomon. Remember him? Solomon takes over. And do you remember that scene, that very solemn scene, when God appears to Solomon and says, Solomon, ask for whatever you want. And Solomon asks for wisdom. And God says, well, since you asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you everything else. Remember that? That took place while Solomon was offering sacrifices at Gibeon. Then fast forward with me a bit. Uh, Israel has been dragged into captivity into Babylon. Now she's being allowed to go back. And in the Ezra Nehemiah era, there is a list of people who came back to Israel. And in that list, guess what you're going to find? There is a list of Gibeonites. And interestingly, they are no longer on the outside, they are listed as sons of Israel. Then, when Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem to build the wall around Jerusalem, the people who worked on the wall are listed. And guess who that list includes? Gibeonites. Oh, one other little factoid. One of David's mighty men, you know, the guys that were the closest to David, the one who helped David through all his battles, was a Gibeonite. So here, ladies and gentlemen, the Gibeonites come into contact with the people of God as pathological liars. And at the end of their history, or at the end of the story of, of the Gibeonites. Oh, they're no longer cutters of wood and drawers of water. No, no, no. They're worshipers. They're warriors. They're workers. They're sons. You know, guys, uh, the book of Hebrews tells us that Rahab was, was a saved woman. And whether the people of Gibeon came to faith as a group, we have no way of knowing. But we do know this, that some of them did. Which has a lesson for us. If you can't see it, let me, let me spell it out for you. God takes prostitutes, former prostitutes. And he turns them into ancestors to the Savior. 
He takes pathological liars. And he turns them into sons of the living God. God responds to faith. No matter what you've done. Tell me, my friend. What is your sin of choice? What's the one that has plagued you? I don't know what it is and I don't care. Because one of the reasons I think we get this story, ladies and gentlemen, is to remind you that God always responds to faith. He always responds to faith in the Savior that he provided. 3,000 years later, here we sit, and the same gospel of grace is telling us, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, all you prostitutes out there, all you pathological liars out there, all you... This fill-in-the-blank... Because, ladies and gentlemen, whatever your sin is, it has not taken you beyond the reaches of his grace. That's the point. Every Christian, no matter who you are, who we are, was once very Rahab-like, very Gibeonite-like, or... Choose your sin. We were all once rebels. Not one of us was born good, ladies and gentlemen. There's none good. No, not one. And there are some who choose to continue to fight him. That confederacy of kings, they heard the same thing that the Gibeonites heard. They, choose to, they chose to keep on fighting and they were destroyed. The Gibeonites heard. And their decision was they need to get close to this God, this Yahweh. Guys, Rahab and the Gibeonites, they were people who were outsiders. They were, they were um, disenfranchised. They were the dirty. They were the undeserving both of those examples are in here to assure us that nothing you've done pushes you beyond the reaches of his grace. God always has and always will respond in restoration and forgiveness to people who embrace his Savior. If you don't believe me, talk to Rahab. Talk to the Gibeonites. I know you can't do that. That's kind of foolish to say, but let me close with this. There is a statement. This is just a part of a verse in Hebrews chapter 6. It's in verse 18. And it describes them and it describes a lot of us. It simply says, we who have fled 
for refuge. That's what Rahab did. That's what the Gibeonites did. They fled to Christ for refuge. That's what I did. Have you done that? Our Father, it is a sweet privilege to remind folks that our sin, though complicated as it is and and rebellious as it smells, it has not pushed us beyond the reaches of your grace. That you've responded to liars and prostitutes in the past and you'll continue to respond to all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of us have done that, Father, but for those who you've brought here today who have not, would you remind them? Would you overwhelm them with the beauty of the free offer of the gospel? That he who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And though we cannot save ourselves by our goodness, Christ, by his goodness, has saved a people. Now, O oh God, draw people to that Savior, even now. We ask it in Jesus' name.